Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have, for the first time, someone from Idaho. That's very exciting. Very exciting. We've got uh, with us on the phone, Dr. Preston Sprinkle. How are you, sir? I'm doing good. How are you? Good. Did I get your name right? Did I, did I pronounce it correctly? Preston Sprinkle, yeah, yeah. Sprinkle. Are you called, yeah. like, Dr. Sprinkle? Does, I'm, I'm assuming there's a lot people did with that well, in junior uh, high. Yeah. Especially in junior high. Nowadays, they just call me Preston. So, mm. <laughs> um, yeah, I've gotten all kinds of – I had to defend myself quite a bit in uh, junior high school, which may be an interesting preface to our topic which is, today. Which is why you spend so much of your time talking about violence is because of your yeah. experience in junior high. Outstanding. Now, you are a VP of Eternity College. Yeah, Eternity Bible College. Uh, we've been around for 12 years. We offer uh, debt-free education as kind of our uh, – distinct uh emphasis i guess um oh. but yeah i've been there for about seven years and now i'm the vp of the boise extension campus nice so we know that you're voting for bernie sanders so go ahead and lay your <laughs> politics on the table debt free college i see what you're doing yeah. but you um you did your school in aberdeen which is across the pond in scotland right. what, what was your doctorate in or what was your it specialty? was in uh, new testament and early judaism so kind of the Jewish background of the New Testament, I specialized in uh, the, uh, Paul's writings, Romans, Galatians, and his understanding of salvation. It's kind gotcha. of the emphasis. So who do you like better, uh, Paul or Jews? Which was the preferred? <laughs> I'm kidding. Paul. <laughs> I like them both. Good. Uh, well, good. We talked enough about uh, first century Judaism and Paul and his stuff with uh, old Dr. N.T. Wright a couple weeks ago. So we're not going to talk cool. about that. We've had awesome. enough. No more <laughs> Sanders and all that stuff. So okay. keep yeah. that to yourself. Keep that. <laughs> now, uh, I know you because of our uh, mutual friend, Jeff Cook. Now, you yeah. guys have debated on hell, homosexuality, yeah. uh, anything else? Uh, let's see. I think that's it. And uh, we're actually in agreement on hell now. We still disagree on homosexuality. Well, we disagree on some aspects of the homosexuality debate. I hate reducing it to, you know, <laughs> is it sin? Is it not sin? There's so much more to it than that. But, uh, yeah, we, uh, we're we good friends. We, we disagree on that. But I think we both very much respect each other. And, and yeah, he's just it's a shame that he's wrong. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, Jeff was on the podcast, uh, I guess it was back in the summer. He's a good guy. And yeah. he said... I got a message from him, and he said, hey, I want you to talk to Preston about nonviolence. And then I got a message just a, a day or two later from another friend named Darren, who I respect a whole lot. And he said, hey, I've got this guy who teaches on terrorism, former CIA operative. I want yep. you to talk to him about violence. And I thought, let's do this. One from each side. Cool. Now, what do you think would happen if you guys got in a fight? Who would win, like a physical fight? You and a former or a former CIA operative? I, I would probably lose the fight. <laughs> would you? But would you be losing on purpose? That's the question. <laughs> okay, okay, don't answer that right now. Um, the other guy is very big, from what I imagine. So you don't have to answer. Anyway, but you specifically are not an advocate for being a pacifist as much as for nonviolence. Would you make a distinction between those two? Correct. Sort. Yes. Yeah, okay. Of. Don't answer. Don't answer it yet. Yeah, just... I re- yeah. I don't refer to myself as a pacifist. Okay. We'll we'll come back and answer the specifics of the difference in those two things. But before we get to that, I want to hear how your journey took you to this place. 
I was raised in a pretty much a military family. Dad was a Marine, grandfather Marine. Um, uh, I remember hearing when I was an early believer that uh, a professor at my college was a Christian and a pacifist. And I remember hearing that thinking, <laughs> he's just laughing, like, well, that's a contradiction. You can't be a Christian and a pacifist. Like, mm-hmm. that just doesn't, if you're a pacifist, that's an unchristian stance to hold. Um, I actually, in my, emotionally, I, I actually love violence. I, I have no problem watching violent movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have any emotional, political aversion of violence. I wasn't raised in a nonviolent church. I was, I'm still reformed. Mm-hmm. Conser- you know, even Sorry about that. That's uh, unfortunate. I'll <laughs> <laughs> have to say that there's nothing political, emotional, or even in my church tradition that would at all um, shape a nonviolent ethic in me. It, was, it really came down to me studying. Well, let me back up. I, I taught an ethics class about seven years ago where one of the topics we wrestled with was just war theory, nonviolence, and everything in between. And, and I said, okay, as a professor, I have to actually entertain this nonviolent position and try to yeah. treat it fairly. So I'm going to read stuff on both sides. And I remember studying the scriptures with this question in mind. I was kind of shocked at uh, the biblical case for nonviolence. wasn't quite convinced. Um, but that began me on this journey to say, whoa, wait a minute. Um, a why did I grow up in a Christian context thinking nonviolence wasn't even a Christian option mm-hmm. Two, what does the Bible, like, what does the Bible say? I know if somebody comes in and tries to kill my family, I know what I, what I want to do. I want to rip his head off and go after his family. And, you mm-hmm. know, like I, I know, but then I looked at how much of that's given by American modern cultural values and how much of that is from scripture. And I began to see so much of my view on violence was way more shaped by my American narrative rather than a, a very countercultural Christian narrative. And so uh, that began my journey researching for the book that I wrote called Fight, A Christian mm-hmm. Case on Violence. And, and that book is really a byproduct of this probably maybe three or four year journey studying this, this topic out. So what was that conversation like the first time you told your dad, former Marine, yeah. uh, that, hey, uh, I don't think uh, uh, violence is the way to go? Well, we never actually talked about So my dad's not a believer. I, my parents were divorced when I was 10. So I don't really know if he knows I wrote a book on it, quite oh, honestly. Okay. <laughs> right. um, but, uh, you know, I have a lot of friends in the military. One of my uh, – a good friend of mine is a, um, is a Navy SEAL, and now he's a chaplain and he's a pacifist. He's the only Navy SEAL chaplain, I believe. He served in Desert Storm, and it was his interaction with war and violence that um, he saw the, the radical clash between – what he learned as a seal and, um, and what he saw in scripture. Uh, another friend of mine, he actually just passed away. He's uh, 89 years old. He's a world war two vet, Vietnam vet, Korean vet, purple heart. Um, and he again saw the, uh, saw the other side of violence and warfare. And, and, and he, uh, he, he was one of the guys who endorsed my book. And so I've, I've seen a lot of, it's not either you're kind of in the military and pro-violence or you're this wimpy pacifist who wants to see evil run rampant. Like there's a whole group of people that are, are seeing kind of two different value systems butting heads against each other, Christians or, or you know, this Christian worldview and this, uh, this, this American modern Western worldview, and, and oftentimes they go head to head. Yeah. Well, obviously, hopefully, one of the things that's accomplished by me putting out this in the next podcast is to see that there are Christians who are committed to the way of Jesus that have radically different ways of thinking that's fleshed out. And so, like you're trying to say, um, 
you can't just say, well, Christians have this one view on this one subject. There is a um, cornucopia of different ways to take that. And your take is the way of nonviolence. So go ahead and give me the speech about what's the difference between nonviolent and being a pacifist for those who've never even thought there's a difference. I avoid the term pacifism because there's, I think, 20-something different versions of pacifism, mm-hmm. um, most of which I think are terrible. Um, I, I specifically endorse what I call a Christocentric or Christian mm-hmm. version of nonviolence. I mean, if Jesus doesn't die on a cross and get resurrected from the grave, then I'm not going to love my enemy. Like, that doesn't make, doesn't make any sense. So without yeah. the death and resurrection of the Lordship of Jesus— Pacifism makes no sense. Um, and yet there's a lot of non-Christian versions of pacifism that see, you know, they, the people that just they don't like violence or um, they think it's evil, but they don't have any real moral foundation for that. Um, or they think it's the best way to confront um, systemic oppression. There's a lot of nonviolent revolts throughout the 20th century that were successful. And not most of those weren't even Christian in, in, in form. And so I want to kind of separate myself from those versions of pacifism. That's one reason why I don't use the term pacifism. The second reason is most people, when you hear the term pacifism, what do you immediately think of? Passiveness. Yeah, being passive. Yeah. So uh, sitting back and saying, oh, a bunch of evil people, a bunch of bad people doing evil. I'm going to sit back self-righteously and watch evil run rampant. Where my, what I believe is that we should aggressively confront evil but that the Christian means of confronting evil should be nonviolent means. So it's not a question of whether we should fight or not fight. It's, it's why I named my book Fight. Mm. <laughs> we should fight vigorously, but we should fight with Christian, uh, with a Christian ethic. And as I show in my book, that Christian ethic is, is one of nonviolence. Yeah, so I read the paper that you presented. Uh, I guess it was Atlanta at um, – what yeah. was that conference called? Um, uh, ETS, Evangelical yeah. Theological, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So at ETS, you presented, you actually presented on your uh, your new book as well, correct? The, the second yeah. paper on homosexuality was derived from your new book, of course. Right. But uh, the one on fight, you have the line that quest- the question isn't if they should fight against these evil, but the means by which they do. And you go on to say there is little to no biblical evidence that Christians should use violence to confront evil. Right. Now, I'm assuming... As a person who, uh, elsewhere you said that um, evangelicals have a strange affection for military power and an odd history of being pro-war. Okay, so that is the major evangelical ethos is we're pro-war, we're pro-violence, but your claim is that there's nothing in the Bible that supports Christians using violence to confront evil. Yeah, that's very carefully worded, too. Um, did I get the wording correctly when I quoted you, 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 it? It's perfect, yeah. Um, because well, I, did, I did read it, so, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> so you really, you got it correct, yeah. You didn't memorize it? Um, uh, <laughs> I, and I said, you, you, the quote you read said, biblical evidence for Christians to use violence. Now, everybody's going to say, what about the Old Testament? What about the genocide mm-hmm. of Joshua? There's violence everywhere. No. But again, I'm talking about a distinctive Christian ethic. And when we talk about Christian ethics, we need to read Old Testament ethics through the lens of the New Testament and the lens of Jesus and the cross. And so let, let me be even more specific. There is not, there's no verse in the New Testament that says that Christians could or should use violence to defend themselves or defend the innocent. 
Now, some people say, well, it's just it's an argument from silence. But here's the thing. There's, there was a lot of innocent people in the first century, a lot of people being oppressed, a lot of people being attacked. Violence was everywhere. And so it's not like the categories didn't exist. The categories were day-to-day categories that people face. How can we fight oppression? How can we defend the innocent? How can we further the kingdom of God? And it's, it's striking that there's not a single verse in the New Testament that says, yes, Christians, there is a place to use violence if somebody's beaten on you, if your family's being attacked. It just doesn't exist. Not only that, but we see very radical commands uh, to love your enemy, to pray for those persecuting you, do good to those who hate you, don't return evil for evil, um, you know, embrace suffering. If you get killed, you actually win, and the book of Revelation is filled with this stuff. So there's, mm-hmm. there's these two sides of this argument that, to, to my mind, both, well, there's, there's two main points to observe that in the New Testament, again, there's not a single verse that allows Christians to use violence, and also there's many verses that say that Nonviolence is uh, an outflow of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Yeah, yeah. But in the first century, some might look at that and go, well, first century Christians had no power. They had no ability to exert any sort of um, stopping power to evil or to people being victimized. Whereas Christians in the 21st century, uh, one of the things that we're not short on is power. There's plenty of power and influence we have, whereas you know, first century Christian, if they're going to be violent, the Roman, you know, the Roman powers that be will just squash them. They'll be, they'll be over in a matter of days or, or weeks or however long it took, but they would lose. Whereas people in the first 21st century, as Christians, we have power. We can do things with violence that really help other people out. What, what would you say to that, that argument? <laughs> it's a terrible argument. <laughs> As if there's anything in the New Testament that says, if you have power, then well, definitely wage it. But no, what if Paul didn't, Paul wasn't speaking to an audience that this was an option for them. Like when you're the little guy, like first century Christians, they didn't, they didn't have the ability to do that. But the argument that the New Testament makes isn't grounded in their inability to actually win. It's grounded in the ethic of Christ. It's intrinsic to the way of Jesus. And it's fascinating. Um, and I brought that, I think I brought up in the paper, definitely my book that, you know, the, the suffer, the nonviolent journey that Jesus took in the gospels, which is not really debated. I mean, pretty much everybody's going to say, yeah, Jesus chose a nonviolent journey, but most people that are not passive, not nonviolent advocates would say that, well, he has to now. die. Easy now. He, <laughs> he, he never fought back because he had to die. He had to go to the cross. He couldn't. But what's interesting is when the New Testament writers draw upon Jesus, they look at his nonviolent journey to the cross as not just a means of atoning for a sin, but as a, a, a pattern for believers to follow. Romans mm-hmm. 12, 1 Peter 2, they look at Jesus' nonviolent journey and they say that is intrinsic to the rhythm of Christianity that we should also endure suffering and, and imitate the way of Christ. Um, it's not just a means for Jesus to get crucified. So again, going back to your question, I, I don't, you, you don't see that argument in the New Testament itself. Hey, because we're weak and we're small, we can't overthrow Rome. But if we could, then yeah, let's pick up arms and take them out. What's, um, if you even move into the second and third century, when Christianity did start to grow and gain all this power, the early church writers still maintained this Christian ethic of nonviolence, even when they had power to sort of overthrow people. They never would have signed off on using power and violence to establish the kingdom on earth. But they didn't have drones back then. 
So it's, you know, it's not really fair. Okay, so what if, okay, so let's say I read your book, Fight, and I'm listening to you talking, and I'm going, okay, I'm choosing to take a personal ethic of nonviolence. I'm not going to be a pacifist because I don't want to sit back with my hands folded behind my head and watch violence going down against other people. I want to be involved, but I'm not going to use violent measures personally when there is wrongdoing around me. I'm going to choose this nonviolent way. Okay, personally, I can buy into that. But I don't think that has anything to do with my nation because we know, according to Romans 13, that God puts nations and governments where they are for specific times and reasons, and God uses that to um, oversee the world. And so I'm fine personally, but luckily my government can do it for me. Uh, It's a perfect argument, isn't it? Well, what are you arguing for? Again, my main... My main argument is really for a Christian ethic that mm-hmm. Christians or the church should not use violence to fight against evil. Mm-hmm. Um, if someone says, well, the nations should do it or can do it, I'm like, well, all right, but that's not what, what the nations are going to do what the nations do. Whether uh, North Korea uses violence to further its kingdom or Saudi Arabia uses violence to further its kingdom or whether America uses violence to further its kingdom – those are the nations like I don't the nations are going to do what the nations do. I don't think that we should um, derive our ethic from what the nations are going to do. And, and Romans 13 is an interesting passage. I think it's been largely misused in this discussion. Um, it's uh, in Romans 13, four says that, you know, God uses uh, the government. And in that context, he's thinking specifically of Rome no friend of Christianity. (laughs) Um, God uses Rome to punish evildoers, but the language of Romans 13 is rooted in this Old Testament idea that God uses secular, evil nations to do his will. Um, We we can see in Isaiah where he used Assyria to Mm -hmm. punish uh, the wrongdoer. He used Babylon. He used Persia. Um, but he turned right around and judged those nations for their actions. And, and Romans 13 flows right out of that Old Testament prophetic idea that God is so sovereign that he can use secular nations to punish evil. Doesn't mean that God is rubber stamping <laughs> the, the practices of those nations. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, people often quote Romans 13 and say, therefore, the nonviolent way is ridiculous. And they're like, well, wait a minute, let's back up and look at. Um, Romans 12, Romans 12, 19 specifically says, don't, you know, it's a command to Christians. He's here. Paul's talking to Christians saying, don't take vengeance, leave it to the wrath of God. And then a few verses later, Romans 13, Paul explains, you know, vengeance is, is, or or that God uses um, the secular state as an act of vengeance, an extension of God's wrath to punish evildoers. So Mm -hmm. the point is, what God does through secular nations, Romans 13, is explicitly, textually, exegetically forbidden from Christians to do in Romans 12, 19. It, it's, that's the flow of the argument. So okay. all, Romans 13 doesn't really challenge, again, my original point that there's nothing in the New Testament that says Christians or the church should use violence to confront evil. So your main argument is that there needs to be a Christian personal ethic for the way that we interact with violence— and then the nation, how they do, that's not really our business? We shouldn't worry about that? Um, well, this is a broader discussion on the intersection between 
a Christian ethic in the secular state? What's the relationship between church and state? And quite honestly, this is where it gets really messy. I don't, I don't think there's a real clear slam dunk. Like, um, let, let me give you a couple options. Just um, give me the right one. Just give me the right option. Give the Jesus way. <laughs> um, some people say that Jesus sort of has two different ethical systems, one for the nations, one for the church. I think that's strange. I don't, uh, that is, I don't think Jesus is schizophrenic. I don't think, you know, when he gave the Sermon on the Mount, he's like, you know, but if you work for the government, then you can throw this whole thing out the window, just, you know, go mm-hmm. do whatever the nations tell you to do. I, I don't, you know, Jesus is the Lord of all. He's a cosmic Lord of the entire universe. I don't think he says, you know, is applauding the nations when they fly drones over and kill a bunch of people and, and then say, well, be Christians. You know, I got a whole separate ethical system for you. I don't, you know, the reformers, Calvin, Luther, I think held to something like that. I just, I don't see that in scripture. Um, at the same time, in the pro, in the Old Testament prophets, you see, you see the prophets calling secular nations on the carpet for violating a, well, Christian, you know, a, yeah. a, Yahweh, a Yahweh ethic. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they call Assyria and Babylon the carpet for doing things that Yahweh says they shouldn't do. So I don't, I, I still wrestle with this question. I mean, how should I view the state? Um, and this is where I kind of, I kind of take a, well, what I said earlier, the nations are going to do what the nations are going to do. The, 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 the church is extending God's kingdom throughout the nations. And that should be our primary focus. You know, do I applaud America when it has all this military might and it, mm-hmm. and it uses it? Well, no. Um, do I say, hey, you need to stop that. Y'all need to become pacifists? Well, no. Again, because my nonviolent ethic is rooted in submission to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, you know, forcing a Christian ethic on any entity that doesn't have the spirit of God that isn't rooted in the gospel is, is, is not going to work, let alone it doesn't really make sense. So hmm. I have an answer to a question. Hopefully, as you see me kind of wrestling, that's, I that's kind of... That's I kind of uh, so there was a pastor who was on the podcast a couple of times named Brian Zahn, and oh, he's yeah. from, uh, I think, Missouri, or you might call it Missouri. I don't know which one. But he tells in his book the uh, a story about him celebrating, I think it was during the Gulf War, the footage that I think CNN had on and, you know, the bombs and all this, the strikes. And, and it was just, um, I, I remember doing the same thing. I remember sitting on a Wednesday night watching this and he now thinks that was the biggest sin that he's ever committed celebrating that. And he believes as, as a Christian, you can't, uh, support, you can't condone, you can't, um, uh, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but there is a group of people that believe that as a Christian, if you are a person of nonviolence, then you can't uh, support a nation's violent actions. Do you? So do you feel like that's not the only way to see things? Um, the word support is tricky. I mean, I pay my taxes fund the military, they fund abortions, they fund greed. I mean, there's we live in a world where we are so caught up in the web of sinful societal structures that unless you take more of like a, uh, an Amish kind of approach to living in the world, um, I, it's kind of hard to get around the fact that we're so intertwined with sinful structures. So, um, yeah, I don't, uh, in some ways I don't support the military. In other ways, my support is inevitable if I pay taxes or whatever. Yeah. 
Um, so I don't. Um, I might be a little. Well, I would. I would want to have a discussion with, with Brian to kind of unpack what, what do you mean by support? Because I think some of it's inevitable. But yeah, by and large, I don't. Um, let, let me say that my the only. You know, people say, well, how do you, I, I've got friends that are still in the military now, and, and people say, well, how do you relate to people that are soldiers and stuff? And I'm like, to my mind, the problem isn't so much with the individual who is wanting to fight for their country, who is making a sacrifice. I, there's many things I applaud in that. I want to step back and say, how did the evangelical church become so, like, eager to adopt so many secular values of overcoming evil with evil and using power to overcome the other and, and not loving your enemy, but destroying your enemy before they destroy you. And there's so many values that have seeped down into the evangelical church. So I would put the blame more on, um, more on a systemic issue of we have so many evangelical leaders who not only adopt these, I would say secular values, but promote them in the church. So of course there's going to be Christian individuals who, go off and join the military because they want to defend their country. Uh, um, so I, I don't put the blame too much on the individual, but more on the overarching system. So what do you think uh, the evangelical leaders should be doing if it's not what maybe it has been done when you say they've adopted this strange affection for military power and this odd history of being pro-war? I think they should speak out against it, really. I, th- I think that they should... I mean, how many sermons have you heard from you know, well-known evangelical leaders that are, that are on loving your enemies, uh, not retaliating to, I, I think we need to speak out aggressively against this unchecked adoption of uh, American values that clash with the countercultural Christian ethic. We do it with sexuality for the most part. I mean, not, not to sneak in a homosexuality discussion, but we have many uh, Christian leaders who are, being very courageous and, you know, taking a stand and don't let these cultural values trickle down in. And, and yet at the same time, some of these same leaders are doing the same thing with, you know, uh, power and, and wealth and all kinds of other things. So to me, it's Jesus had some really, really hard things for people who said, you know, <laughs> religious leaders who said, you shouldn't be doing that. And yet they themselves are adopting all kinds of um, non-Christian stances on things. So, yeah, I think Christian leaders should step up, be bold, and, and speak out against um, uh, the unchecked adoption of uh, uh, fighting power with power. Hmm. So do you think, I mean, that if a pastor is going to hear this, they do you feel like the onus should be on them to get up and speak out against maybe um, uh, how our military functions and speak out about our response to, say, ISIS? Maybe not ISIS specifically, but... Uh, places where we've been uh, hurt by other nations and our response is to in turn hurt them back? No, I I wouldn't go there. I I would say we need to back up. So I I think the fundamental roots are, I think that the church has seen their citizenship, their American citizenship is way, way more of a higher priority than they have their Christian citizenship. Hmm. Um, just like, I mean, in, in your sentence, you use the term we and us twice to refer to our American citizenship. I was referring to the mouse in my pocket by myself. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I thought that's what that was. It was, yeah. Um, but that's was, fair. Like, I've, I've adopted my, my national uh, citizenship to be equal to my kingdomly 
citizenship. No, if, yeah. if you ask any Christian, hey, what should we do about ISIS? They're going to immediately think the we is we Americans. Do you know the New Testament hardly ever uses the plural pronoun we or us to refer to anything other than your Christian citizenship? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, my, my, my unity with my Saudi Arabian brothers and sisters in Christ is way higher than my relationship to my next door neighbor who's not a believer who uh, fought in, you know, Desert Storm or whatever. Like, uh, I, I think we need to see ourselves as strangers and exiles scattered across the world. And regardless of your, you know, of course, we need to obey the state, submit to the state, whether you're a North Korean believer, a Saudi Arabian believer, Ugandan believer, American believer. But, like, we need to see our um, citizenship in God's kingdom as primary and you know i i think that american christians have so eagerly elevated their um american citizenship without even realizing it i mean even things like this is gonna make some people mad but um how many christians say the pledge of allegiance without even without even asking the question is this is this okay now i i still Say it. I, I don't. I don't. I'm not the guy who sits and protests, whatever. But do Christians really pledge allegiance to a secular nation? I mean that that that's that's theological language. Pledging allegiance. My allegiance is to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And if my Lord says, "Love your enemy," I don't care what my state says. I'm going to obey my Lord rather than my Caesar. Um, and, and yet, I mean, I think I. Even quite, if you even raise the question, is it okay for Christians to pledge allegiance, you would, you're going to get all kinds of hate mail. I'm saying that's ridiculous. Any first century Jewish Christian who said, I pledge allegiance to Caesar of Rome, who is my, I mean, they, they, would, they would be really, really nervous about doing something like that. Um, so I, I just think that we have, um, we have intertwined our allegiance to the state with our allegiance to Jesus in ways that I think we need to step back and try to unravel that. So I'm sorry, I'm talking too much. No, it's okay. I appreciate this. I know you've got to go in a few minutes and go burn some flags because that's (laughs) obviously what you do. No, I'm kidding. Like this is Paul, like Philippians three, like your citizenship is in heaven. There is a, a direct command to realize that your citizenship ultimately is to Jesus, not to the nation or the country that you're a part of. Right. And some might say, if you want to follow Dr. Wright's language, that whenever you say Jesus is Lord, it is an implicit statement that it means Caesar is not Lord. And so there's always this countercultural thing that we've got to wrestle with. And so that the way that we engage with the world is going to be different because of our ultimate citizenship is not our nation. Right. Right. OK, so you have this line where you say we could nuke ISIS to hell, but it would leave the devil still untouched. Mm-hmm. And so. We're looking for a different way to engage with evil, right? Is that ultimately what you're saying? Like you can take care of ISIS, but that doesn't deal with, or dare I say Paul's language, our battle's not against flesh and blood. Right. What do you think would help people to realize that our battle isn't against flesh and blood and that you could nuke ISIS or whatever terrorist group away, um, but it wouldn't really deal with the ultimate issue? Yeah, I think that that's a clear biblical uh, way of thinking. And everybody knows Ephesians 6, and we talk about spiritual warfare, and we mm-hmm. put on the armor of God when we're in a lawn and everything. But, but to really think about what spiritual warfare means, um, 
within a biblical world, yeah, I think that that's directly relevant to uh, questions about evil and warfare and bad people in the world today. And uh, you can't fight a non-flesh and blood enemy with flesh and blood weapons. Um, And I think Christians should look past the uh, symptom of evil, namely terrorist groups, dictators, you know, um, horrible leaders, whatever around the world, mm-hmm. uh, militias. We need to look past that, or not past it, but maybe look through that and see there's a deeper um, spiritual issue going on. And uh, I, I think, yeah, fighting, you know, just killing the bad people is not is not actually defeating evil. I remember um, when Obama and uh, John, uh, John Cain, that debate they had in 2008 back at, uh, um, it was at Rick Warren's church. Yeah. Right? yeah. McCain and, and Obama, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, McCain yeah. and Obama. And, um, and I remember uh, Rick Warren asked a question, and I'm not going to paraphrase it, but he said, you know, do we, how do we treat, how should we treat evil? We negotiate with it, love it, ignore it, or destroy it. You know, and uh, I remember Obama gave some slippery answer. It was, you know, really political. And then John McCain said, is it John McCain? Am I getting that right? Yeah, McCain, yes. <laughs> and he said, destroy it. And standing ovation, the whole crowd, the Christian, you know, the huge Christian churches went, yeah, we destroyed evil. But I'm like, okay, so Jesus already destroyed evil on the cross by dying, by mm-hmm. suffering. Uh, the New Testament is pretty clear and extensively so that, that, you know, like the book of Revelation says that martyrdom is the most powerful way to conquer evil. It's, it's a main theme in the book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. Um, 1 Peter 2, Romans 12, you have so many passages that talk about not just the inevitability of suffering, but the actual power, the power to confront evil that when Christians suffer, I'm like, how, how, do, we, how do we think that a secular nation destroying bad people overseas, that that's actually defeating evil. I mean, there's probably not a person in that 10,000 person room or whatever that, you know, that didn't think that that was a Christian response, you know? And I'm like, man, that's just, again, I think we've been shaped by this uh, power driven militaristic culture that says, yeah, you, you want to stamp out evil, you kill bad people, you kill your enemy before your enemy kills you. That is in direct contradiction with a new Testament ethic. Yeah. I would assume some people might have qualms with your statement that this is um, not a Christian nation. Because this is, in the way that you seem to be describing this, you're saying we're just a nation, a secular nation. This isn't the Christians, this isn't the church. Uh, but some would say, no, we, we are a Christian nation. The majority of people are Christians. Uh, you know, the, the founders, according to this argument, you know, they were Christians. So we're based on Judeo Christian principles. So. I, I, I don't see the difference. I don't. Uh, do people really believe that anymore? <laughs> I, we're going to let you answer. You're the professor, and you're the Calvinist, so whatever God's will is for them to believe, is, is that's your world, not mine. I, I don't know. Uh, I think that's definitely a very small, maybe loud, but minority view. Uh, the only thing I've really encountered is some people say that we were founded on Christian principles, but even then, the founding fathers were more... Um, I mean, I'm not a historian, but from what I do know, they were more deistic, not 
not theistic or the theistic ones weren't necessarily Christian. Um, do we have, does our nation reflect Judeo-Christian values? Well, some of it, um, does our nation, does it stand up against greed? Well, no, our entire economy is built on people spending money on stuff they don't need. Um, is it built on loving your enemy, which is a real basic, basic Christian ethic, loving your enemy. Um, when people in the world look at America, do they think, oh, that's a nation that loves their enemies? <laughs> let me ask you a question. Uh, well, let me uh, let me just say something. <laughs> <laughs> you just sit there and be quiet. I'm going to go all the time. Um, Fair enough. I'll do that. Go ahead. You know the most quoted verse in the first 300 years of Christianity was Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies. The, the John 3.16 of the early church was love your enemies. When pagan society around the early church thought of this, this growing Christian movement, their immediate thought was, oh, those are the people that feed the poor uh, and love their enemies. I don't, last time I checked, America is not known for being a nation that loves their enemies. So I don't, it's, it's, it's one thing to say, you know, on a very, 30,000-foot level, oh, we're a Christian nation, we have Judeo-Christian roots and everything, but it's like, okay, well, let's, let's define what a Christian ethic is. Um, excessive generosity, loving your enemy, forgiving your the person who's offended you 70 times 7, um, sexual purity, um, all these things that I, I just, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't really see that in, in American values. I mean, no. uh, we love our neighbor, uh, but Jesus says even tax collectors do that. That's not a big deal. Like love people that are next to you that you like, you know. And, um, so yeah, I, I don't. Uh, I don't think there's any real evidence that we are a, a quote Christian nation. Okay. Well, like I said, I'll let you get back to burning flags in just a minute uh, when the conversation is over. Okay. So the important question that you always have to answer when you talk about nonviolence is um, a What would you do with Hitler? And b What would you do if someone broke into your house? So I, this is the common, you know, uh, where do I even begin with that? I, I would, I would not even answer that question until we look at what the Bible says about violence and fighting evil, because people often throw that. Question We've heard out. that for the last 37 minutes. We've heard what the Bible says about evil from you. And so we, so, we know we're supposed to love people. So he, he no, here, here's what I'm going to, so the person that's going to ask that question to me, I'm going to say, okay, are we in agreement that, um, well, I just shouldn't use violence. I'll be the person. If they, if they say, okay, if they say, well, no, we're not in agreement, I'm saying, well, I can't even answer that question yet. Okay, we, I, we hold on. Well, I'll be the person. I agree, yeah, we shouldn't be violent to people who are personally hurting us. We should choose to forgive. Okay. But I don't want to have to force other people to do the same thing. I'm fine for me to turn the other cheek, but I don't want to make other people have to do that. Like six million Jews had to turn the other cheek and kind of die because of Hitler. Yeah. So what should Christians do with Hitler? Yeah, so should we go Bonhoeffer on him? Like try to <laughs> slip a bomb under his table? <laughs> what I'm asking is, so, yeah, is Hitler burning in hell right now? <laughs> or, no, 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 excuse me. Is bon, sorry, is Bonhoeffer burning in hell now because he tried to kill Hitler? Well, we're not set to hell for doing a, even if it was a sin for him to do that. <laughs> let, let me, um, let's, let's broaden the question out. Is there ever a place to use violence as a last resort? Is it um, good question? If uh, so, okay, Hitler. What makes Hitler so bad that we should use violence against him? Because he killed six million people or more. Um, what if he killed a hundred people? What if he killed five people? Like how, how many deaths does it take to where okay now the tables have turned? We need two. to take him out. I would go with two. 
Okay, what about the drone pilot, the 18-year-old drone pilot who killed a bunch of children, 17 children because he misfired the thing? Do we kill him? Um, what about... Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, how, what about the CIA, the Oscar CIA friend? How, how many uh, dictators who have ended up massacring tons of their own people, how many dictators have been put in place by the CIA? Does that mean we go bomb Langley? I mean, do we destroy all CIA agents because they were playing a part in raising up many Hitlers around the world, which is not, that's just an observation. I mean, that's not really debated. Um, where, do, where do we draw the line? And um, is there a place to use violence as a last resort, as a, hey, this is, this is the lesser of two evils? I used to say, yeah. And I could actually, I, I think it's, there's a good argument for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to at least explore it a little bit and say, okay, well, let's think really critically. What does it mean, last resort? Have you exhausted all possibilities? Um, could a nonviolent attack be more effective? You know, what's often not talked about is, this, is the success of many nonviolent revolutions throughout the 20th century. Okay, so w- um, what exactly is a nonviolent? Is that like a water balloon attack, or what is a nonviolent <laughs> attack? <laughs> it's putting people on the armbar, you know, Rousey style. Um, yeah. No, uh, Until Holly Holmes knocks her out. Man. Church of Christ girl, come on now. Is okay, she? go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Her dad's a Church of Christ preacher. Right and that's what my daughters are going to do to all the Reformed little girls out. Give them 15 years. No, okay, okay. Hey, we're over time. Um, let me tell people one thing about you. You're on Twitter. You've got a new book out. Uh, I'm looking at the title of it right now, looking at the cover. It's called People, Why Homosexuality to Be is Not Just an Issue Loved. That's a really long title. <laughs> Did I get that wrong? I think you got that wrong. <laughs> oh, is it? It's People to Be Loved. The subtitle is Why Homosexuality is Not Just an Issue. I'm just really... <laughs> I'm not a professor. That's why I'm at a church and you're a professor. Uh, you're just reading, you're reading top down, right? Exactly. That's how I, I learned. But a lot of the conversation is based off your book, Fight, A Christian's Response to uh, Non... Is that right? Christian's Case for Nonviolence, correct? A Christian case for Nonviolence. There yeah. you go. Hey, thanks for your time, Dr. Sprinkle. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Luke. Appreciate it. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.